Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, I was, uh, I was mowing my lawn uh, a couple weeks ago. I was listening to a podcast and uh, Craig Rochelle made this statement. He said, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a culture of perpetual offense. And, and I thought, man, that is a, such a true statement, right? Our, our culture is so quick to judge, so quick to criticize, so quick to condemn, right? We are ready to cancel anyone at a moment's notice. Do you, do you remember the good old days when we only used to cancel like uh, corrupt politicians and whiny athletes and celebrities or, or big business CEOs that were like ripping people off? But nowadays, right? Now we're willing to cancel anybody, a teacher that says something that we don't like, someone that we work with or we go to school with, right, that maybe says something that, that we have a different opinion about. It could even be a friend on social media that has different political views than we do. We're so quickly to simply write people out of our story and out of our lives. But you know what, I don't think this is a new thing. In fact, I think this has been a part of our world for at least the last like 75 years or so. Uh, Corey Ten Boom and uh, her family lived in Holland at the start of uh, World War II. And when the Nazis occupied Holland, the Ten Boom family, they took in uh, Jewish people that were uh, hiding. They hid them in their homes. They provided a safe place for them so they wouldn't be deported into concentration camps. Unfortunately, the Ten Boom family was betrayed by a close friend. They were turned into the Nazi-occupied forces and they were taken away, taken out of their home. And they were taken to prisons and taken to concentration camps. In fact, Corey's father and her sister both died, one in a Nazi prison, the other at Ravensbrück concentration camp. I mean, can you even imagine I, mean, I don't think any of us, very few of us have ever experienced anything that would, would be on that level. But let me ask you this. Have, have you ever been betrayed by someone? We all have, right? Ever been accused of something by someone? Judged by someone? Someone you know, someone close to you, someone you just didn't see it coming maybe? Have you ever felt trapped in a conversation, in a relationship, in a situation, in a decision, condemned by others? See, I think a big part of the reason that this has just become or acceptable in our community, in our culture right now, is because I think we have lost sight of our identity. In fact, I would challenge and say that every single one of us has an identity crisis. After the sun and the moon and the stars and planets and the ocean and animals and birds and fish were created, here's what God said, Genesis chapter one. He said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And then he said this, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female he created them. See, one of the very first things 
that God did as he established creation is that he created Adam and Eve, right? He breathed life into humans as part of that creation story. But then he did this. He intended and gave us an intentional identity. He said that we were made in the image of God, that we were created to know God. We were created to be in relationship with God. We were made to be just like God. And it was incredible for two whole chapters. And then everything fell apart, right? Genesis chapter three, look what it says. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her the whole time, never said anything about it, right? And he, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. See, when we make the decision to do things our way and instead of God's way, what happens is that we replace the identity that God gave us, that we were made in his image. We trade that in for this thing called shame. And I really believe that we were never intended to ever experience shame. It was not something that we were ever built or made to carry in our lives. And that's the problem, right? Is that we don't know how to carry it. We see it, we know we have it, we feel it all the time. And we're really good at seeing it in other people as well. And what we try to do is we try to force ours onto them, right? We try to project ours out of our life into someone else's life, but it doesn't work that way. Here's the the good news. In fact, I would say this is the great news. Jesus came to fix that. In fact, he spent three years, encounter after encounter, act of compassion after act of compassion to remind us of not only who we are, but maybe more importantly, whose we are. Bringing us back to the relationship that God intended from the very beginning. See, that's what we're gonna talk about in this series. We're gonna take a look at some encounters of everyday, ordinary, regular people just like us and how they encountered Jesus. We're gonna see and learn a lot about Jesus, about how he loved people, how he treated people. We're also going to discover ourselves in these stories. And and if we're honest, at times we're gonna be a little uncomfortable. It's not always gonna be fun to see ourselves in these stories. But here's the amazing part. What we're also gonna see is that God reached down that he took us by the hand, he picked us up, brushed us off, and gave us a new start, gave us a new life. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter eight. That's where we're gonna be today. You can also use our app as well. The notes are in there. You can download that. You can follow along and then send notes back to yourself. Let me, uh, let me set this up while you're turning to John chapter eight. Let me give you a little bit of background because we need to address something um, up front with this passage. If you have your Bible with you, you may have a little footnote there that says something along the lines of the oldest manuscripts uh, didn't have this in their story, right? That it was added later. And some of you may be wondering, okay, well, what's up with that, right? Is this really something? we should study, right? Is is this something we should be concerned about? Why is this added later? And as some of you, maybe you're even a little bit farther out than just wondering, maybe you would call yourself skeptical. Maybe you would say, see, there it is. I knew that the Bible isn't accurate. Okay, well, just hold on for just a second. If the Bible was trying to hide something, then why put a footnote telling you that this story was added later? See, the answer to that is easy. It's the Bible is accurate. It's honest. It's not trying to hide anything. Now, let me give you a couple things to note with this passage. The first is this. No major doctrine is in question in this passage. The second is this. It's not going to contradict anything else that's in the Bible. 
In fact, there's two primary views from two of the early church fathers. The first is Augustine, and he believed that this story was actually in the original text, but they took it out of the text because they feared that there was going to be massive adultery, right? They feared that if people read this passage, they read this story, that what they're gonna see is if some people committed this and, and then Jesus really didn't seem to stop it or, or be concerned about it. And so they wondered, is this going to become part of the culture? In fact, I would say as a high school pastor for years, I saw students that started studying the Bible, I think looking for verses like this, right? Looking for permission to, to kind of live out this kind of lifestyle. For some of us, we, if we're honest, this is part of our culture. This is part of our world. This is a trend that is still happening. And so what happened is that they removed this from the Bible and then they brought it back later. That's one primary view. Here's the other. It's from one of the church fathers called Jerome, or his name was Jerome. He believed that this was not in the original text, but that it's a faithful historical rendering of an actual, an actual event that occurred. And so since it's not in the other gospels, it's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they added it to the book of John as an accurate historical record, okay? So no one's hiding anything here. We're not looking up some secret stories, right, that, that were added later. This is in the Bible. It should be in the Bible, and it's something that we can study and we can learn from as it's there. So here we go. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. Now, this story took place during the Jewish holiday. It's called the Feast of Booths. And what would happen in this is it was at the end of the harvest, right? So all of the work was done. The harvest is in. People are happy. Money in their pocket. And so they would celebrate at this, this festival, this, this feast. They would go to the temple, everyone would, and they would live in these booths or these tents, right, as they remembered and celebrated their ancestors and their journey through the Exodus. So think uh, Easter meets the 4th of July with this, right? It's kind of like 4th of July, no one's working, and no one has to go to school, the, the sun's out, it's beautiful weather, and, and it's Easter, a big religious holiday, and everybody goes to church. And so they're all hanging out at the temple. Verse two, a crowd soon gathered and they sat down and he sat down being Jesus and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. So it's the morning, right? Jesus is teaching, Jesus is, is preaching and all of a sudden these religious leaders show up and, and they bring this woman into the church who's, who's been caught in this act. Imagine it's Easter Sunday, right? Everybody is here. Everybody's dressed up. We got big hair. Everything's looking good. And then they bring in this lady who's not wearing nearly enough and they rush her up on stage and they stop the band and they stop the service and they make this declaration. We just witnessed this woman commit adultery. I think it's very clear. This was a complete setup from the very beginning, right? I mean, if you're gonna commit adultery, it's probably... It's probably not gonna happen at the temple, right? It's probably gonna happen somewhere else. Adultery tends to be a private, secretive kind of thing, which means that these religious guys, they had to leave the temple and they had to go search this out somewhere. So let me ask you this question. How did these guys know that this was happening? Right? They just happened to leave the festival, leave the, the celebration, leave the temple, and they just kind of stumbled upon it? Not likely. Let me ask you another question. Who's missing in this story? Where's the man, right? Bicycling is a solo sport. Swimming is a solo sport. Adultery is a team sport, right? Where, where is the guy in this story? And this matters because clearly this is not about justice. This is a trap that they were setting. 
And it went down probably something like this. Okay, guys, here's the plan, right? Jesus is gonna be teaching tomorrow morning. Tony, we want you to go uh, get that girl, right? We're gonna be there. We're gonna stand outside and we're gonna watch, right, for religious purposes. And then we're gonna take her and drag her to Jesus. We'll set the trap. Tony, you go home and that's going to work. We are finally gonna have Jesus trapped. Clearly abuse of this woman, right? I mean, this was an intentional evil act on their side. Verse four, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. See, they think they have Jesus trapped. Trapped between the Old Testament law and the, the Roman laws of, of the land, of, of their culture. See, in the, in the Old Testament laws, Right, with the first five books of the Bible, there were 613 laws. And in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. See, in our culture, right, we don't take it quite that seriously anymore, do we? But God does. In fact, this was a capital offense for him, which means that there were not a lot of repeat offenders, right? This was a one and done kind of concept. Now, in addition to God's laws, there were Roman laws. Right, the Romans, they were in charge of everything. The Roman Empire had a, a wide variety of religions and of languages and, and of peoples. And because of that, they came up with their own set of laws. And one of them was that no one is allowed to try and to execute anyone based on religious law. And so Jesus is trapped here, right? If Jesus says he chooses to execute this woman, right, he's violating, he's violating the Roman laws which means he would be arrested and he would be put in prison. But if Jesus chose not to execute her, he would be violating the Old Testament laws, at which point he would be discredited as a teacher and no one would follow him anymore. And so these religious leaders, they think they finally have Jesus trapped. And so they pressure him, Jesus, what do you say? Look at verse six again. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. He bends down and he starts writing something. What we do know is that Jesus never wrote a book. What we don't know is what he's writing in this moment. Verse seven, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. All right, Jesus stands up and, and he gives a verdict and Jesus, he's so awesome, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit, he, he wisely chooses this path that navigates through this lose-lose situation that they have put him in. And here's what Jesus says. He says, okay, guys, yeah, you go for it. You go ahead and, and do it, right? Which, which releases him from violating the Roman law. And it, and it means that he also, it satisfies the Old Testament law by him saying that. But then Jesus adds this one condition before they stone her. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19, it says that the person bringing a public charge, that's the one who gets to throw the first stone. So there was a reason for that. This was their way of, of assuring, this was their way of, of actually like decreasing false charges. Right? So if you were the one that was making a, a statement, if you were testifying publicly that this is a fact, then you were the one that threw the first stone. But if it was proven later that you lied, that you made it up, that this wasn't true, then the execution that you just initiated would be returned back to you, usually the same way that it was done. This would reduce false charges and claims. This was the basis of an eye for an eye judicial system. But look at what Jesus says. Let the one 
who has never sinned throw the first stone. And so Jesus has satisfied the Roman law. He's satisfied the Old Testament law. But then right here, what he does is he guarantees her, her protection. You see, because Jesus knows he's the only one that has never sinned. And so then he stoops down and he continues to write in the dirt. And we still don't know what it is that he was writing, but it seems like the men in the crowd could clearly read whatever it was that Jesus was writing. A lot speculate that maybe it was the, uh, some of the Ten Commandments. Maybe he started with, thou shalt not lie, at which some of the guys in that crowd, right, maybe they caught eyes with each other and realized, man, this whole thing has been a lie. This was a trap right from the very beginning. We made all of this up. We just broke one of the laws. Maybe he then went and wrote, thou shalt not covet another man's wife. And maybe some of them started sweating. We were watching things that we shouldn't have been watching, right? That's two laws now that we've broken. Maybe Jesus wrote, thou shalt not commit adultery. And maybe he started writing some of their girlfriend's names, right? Maybe Sally with an arrow pointing at, at someone, right? And he was like, I didn't know Jesus knew about that, right? Like, hey, that's three laws. I'm batting a, uh, batting a thousand. That's not good, right? Three laws that I've broken. Verse nine, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Right, suddenly these religious leaders, they begin bailing out of the circle, right? They're like, oh, look at the time. Yeah, I gotta go. I was planning on judging this morning, but my calendar just filled up, right? I got some places I gotta be. Um, I'm out of here. I'll see you guys later, right? And something happened there. When they heard Jesus, they began to go away one at a time, beginning with the oldest, right? The old guys go first. Do you wanna know why? Here's why. Because the longer we live, the more we sin, right? Am I wrong with that? And not only the longer we live, the more we sin, but the more aware of our sinfulness and our brokenness we become. And so the old guys are like, yeah, hey, hey, good luck with that. I'm out of here. I'll see you guys at the office tomorrow, right? Um, I'm leaving. And they start to bail one at a time. And Jesus was left alone with this woman, this woman who's been publicly shamed and abused and mistreated and used. And Jesus alone gets to decide her fate. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Has no one condemned you? I love her response, no one. And look at that next word, right? That next word, she says, no one, Lord. This is the beginning of her salvation. This is the beginning of her brand new relationship with Jesus. This is the beginning of her new life because Lord is the shortest profession of faith that any one of us can make because what it means is that it's a declaration that Jesus is God and it's a submission that I am putting my life under your leadership. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more, right? We just came out of a series where we talked about some of our values and one of our values is that we live grace and truth. Neither do I condemn you, grace. Go and sin no more, truth. And that order is very significant and it matters. Let me give you a few observations, a few lessons um, from, from this passage. Here's the first one. Put your rock down. See, to... To fully appreciate 
this story, I think we need to identify with the participants. So let me ask you, don't put your hands up with this, but, but, but just think about this. Are you, are you like the woman? Are you guilty, caught in something? Maybe, maybe it just happened. Maybe it was last weekend. Maybe it was 10 years ago. Something that it's known, you did it, you admitted it, right? It's out there. Maybe people are still bringing it up. Maybe people are still talking about it. Maybe you hadn't thought about it in, in a while. Whatever it is, but you would identify with the woman. You are guilty. It's known. It's out there. Okay, that's us. For some of us, maybe you would say you would identify with the man. You're guilty, whatever it is, but it seems like you got away with it. No one else, no one else really knows, right? You got some secret stuff that's happening over here, some lies and some relationships over there. And you know you're guilty. The reason you know is because you're exhausted. Because it's tiring trying to keep secrets secret and lies from, from, being come, from being discovered. And you're guilty. It's just not public yet. It's just not out there. Maybe you would say you connect with the religious leaders, judging, finding fault, accusing, canceling people. Right? Very quick to overlook our own faults, our own failures, our own flaws, but, but really quick to find them in other people around us. Let me ask you a question. Who do you identify with in this story? Now, some of you are thinking, well, hold on, Donnie. What about Jesus? None of you are like Jesus, okay? Can I, can I just say that? I know a lot of you. None of you are like Jesus, right? Like, none of, that's the first rule in Bible translation. If you're reading the Bible and you're like, well, there I am being like Jesus again, two things, right? One, you're reading it wrong, and two, you're a liar, right? So stop doing that. You are never Jesus in any story ever, right? Bottom line, done. You get to be the woman. You get to be the man. You get to be the religious hypocrite. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot, right? Like, you choose which one you connect to. These religious leaders, they show up to judge this woman, really to judge Jesus. But what I love about this is that Jesus flips the script, right? He says, guys, let's start, by, let's start by taking a look at your own life, right? Let's start by judging yourselves, and they don't like that. And you know what? Neither do we. Because it's always easier to judge others than it is to evaluate our own hearts. Some of us are carrying around a backpack or a purse full of rocks, and they have someone's name on it because it's really convenient in your marriage, right? Every time we disagree, I just take out that rock and I throw it and he goes down or she goes down. It's really convenient in your family. When I'm hurt, when things don't go my way, right? I just bring up that thing from your past and I throw that rock and down they go. It's really convenient with strangers. Every time they say something, every time they post something that we don't agree with, man, we'll throw that rock and down they go. Let me ask you a question. Are you carrying around a rock with somebody's name on it? Or maybe you just surf online throwing rocks at anyone and, and everyone that you disagree with. A few weeks ago, I had some rocks thrown at me online for something that I said or really actually didn't say. It's never fun, right? No one wins when we do that. It just leaves casualties everywhere. Jesus is very clear here. Everyone, put your rock down. Take care of your own sin and stop chucking rocks at other people. Here's the second thing. Eventually, it's going to be just you and Jesus standing together. At some point, every single one of us is going to be alone standing with Jesus. Now, right now, some of us may feel like, man, I don't know if I'm alone with Jesus right now, but I feel alone. I feel naked. I feel vulnerable. I've admitted, right, to something. I know that I'm guilty, 
but I feel like I'm regularly, continually being accused, being condemned by people. Maybe it's, it's Satan, there's a spiritual part to this. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a boss, a former friend, a, a stranger. No matter what I do, it just feels like there's a circle of accusers that have rocks in hand and they're constantly reminding me, this is who you are, this is what you have done. Here's what I want you to know. Eventually, they're all gonna walk away. And eventually, it's just gonna be you and Jesus standing together, just like this woman in this story. This is so important. You have to pay attention to your relationship with Jesus. If you don't have one, or if you're not sure, don't leave this room. If you're watching online, put something in the chat right now. Click on that prayer box, right, and start a little window, a little conversation with somebody. You need to know Jesus as Lord. Here's a third thing. Jesus does not punish you because he was punished for you. See, this woman should have experienced the death penalty, but she does not. Why? Because Jesus died in her place. He took her sin, he took her punishment, he took her payment on himself, and you know what? He did that for you, and he did that for me as well. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one that loves, no one that seeks, no one that saves, no one that serves like Jesus does. And every single one of us has a choice. Will we accept that Jesus died for us, that he died in our place and took our punishment for us, took our punishment from us? See, Jesus does not punish because he was punished for you. Jesus does not condemn you because he was condemned for you. Last one, Jesus forgives sins. See, Jesus has done everything, everything that you need to be forgiven. And you know what's amazing? That out of that, out of the grace that he shows to us, somehow, I don't know, I don't get how this works, but he also gives us the power to forgive other people in our lives as well. So you don't work for your forgiveness, you work from your forgiveness. Jesus doesn't tell her, hey, here's the deal. You need to go, get your act together, straighten up your life, get an accountability partner, get, your, get yourself, get a, a sober chip, right? And then you come back to me and I'll, I'll replace the guilty verdict with a forgiven verdict. That is never how Jesus works. Jesus always starts with, you are forgiven. Guys, when we get that, when we understand that, when we receive that, own that, embrace that, live under that, everything changes. The way that we think changes. The way that we behave, the way that we act changes. The way that we talk, everything in our life changes as a result of that. Now, let me say something that might be a little firm for some of you, but I wanna say this because I love you. I hope you know that. Some of you believe that Jesus forgives you, but you can't forgive yourself. I believe Jesus forgives me, but I know what I've done. And I just can't simply forgive myself. And you know what? It sounds very humble, but it's actually not. It's arrogant, it's pride-filled, and it's, it's just completely, it's completely wrong. Because what you're saying is that I know Jesus judged me and then he declared me forgiven, but I know better than Jesus. And so I want to overturn his verdict and I declare myself guilty again, declare myself unforgiven. See, if you were in court and a judge set you free, said you're free to go, and you said, hold on, judge, hold on, I, I think I need to be imprisoned, right? The judge would say, hold on, first, this is not your courtroom, right? Second, the, the jail cell is locked. You don't have a key, so you're not getting into that. And third, the verdict has already been rendered. You have no authority to overturn my verdict. And in the courtroom of God, if Jesus says you are forgiven, then you're forgiven. 
and it's completely done. Let me close with an excerpt from Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. Fast forward to 1947, and Corey Ten Boom has been released from Ravensbrück concentration camp, and she went back to Germany to preach the forgiveness of God to the German people. And she tells this harrowing true story. It was at a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed, they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. That's when I saw him working his way forward against the others as they were leaving. One moment I saw that overcoat and a brown hat, the next moment a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this leering man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook. And the man who was making his way forward in the basement of that church had been my guard, one of the most cruel guards. And he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are cast at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could you remember one prisoner among those thousands of executed women? But I remembered him and that leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood froze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins again and again had been forgiven, but I could not forget Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Could not have been many seconds he stood there with his hand out, but it seemed to me as hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. I knew it not only as a command of God that I forgive, but also as a daily experience since the end of the war. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you must supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I stretched out my hand to the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, it raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then with this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. I forgive you. 
For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized that it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus has done everything. Everything that you need to be forgiven, your past, your present, your future. Through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, he defeated sin, he defeated death. And God is standing with arms open, ready to embrace you, to welcome you, the same way he did this woman, the same way he did Corey, the same way he did that guard. No matter what you've done, forgiven, free, no condemnation. Because of God's grace, because of that incredible forgiveness, See, we live differently as a result. And somehow in there, he also gives us the power to forgive those who've also hurt us. See, we, we don't work for forgiveness. We work from forgiveness. Let me close with two questions. One is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? The second is this, do you believe that Jesus has forgiven you? Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, thank you, God, for loving us when we didn't deserve it. And God, we sure can't, can't ever earn it. Father, some, somehow you still choose to love us. Despite the brokenness of our lives, the decisions that we make, the times that we run away from you, you have done everything, extended your hand, reached out to us and through your son, Jesus, given us the opportunity to come back home, to be called sons and daughters, adopted into your family, to be reunited with you. Father, if there's someone here at one of our campuses this weekend, if there's someone watching online, maybe this just makes sense for the very first time, or maybe you're just in a place where you just desperately need God's love and forgiveness in your life. It's real easy. God's done everything for you. There's nothing you have to do. Simply in the quiet of your heart, would you just say this, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. I today call you Lord. I declare that Jesus, you are God. And I surrender my life. God, thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace. God, would you give us the strength to put the rocks down? God, to look forward with confidence and peace to that day where we will stand alone with you. God, thank you that you don't punish us. Thank you for taking our punishment for us. And from that, God, forgiving us and setting us free. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We pray this in your perfect, perfect name. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.